I started to use pharmaceutical opiates, and I started to get them by by breaking into uh, doctors' offices, medical centers, pharmacies, uh, stealing them from the lab where I was working, the rat lab. So I was really in bad shape. I was really a mess, and that just led from one disaster to another. Hello, you are listening to the I Bounce Back podcast. This is your host, Indre. You have just heard today's guest, Mark Lewis, who is a neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology. Having been through addiction and come out on the other side, he has decided to research addiction to challenge the modern-day consensus on drug dependence as a brain disease, arguing that in reality it's a complex cultural, social, psychological and biological phenomenon. We will talk about Mark's story and his research in a couple of seconds, but let me thank our sponsors first. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall the gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15OFF. Go to the thegallery.com, that's T-H-E-G-A-L-R-Y.com, so your wall will never be boring again. And now... It's time for Mark's story. This is episode 13, Mark Lewis, Understanding the Addicted Brain. I was a developmental psychologist and uh, using tools from cognitive neuroscience as a professor in Toronto for for many years. And after I stopped, uh, after I stopped using drugs at the age of thirty, I spent about the next uh, twenty five years having not really thinking very much about addiction at all. And then when I wanted to, I wanted to get away from the university and start writing things that were shall we just say, more, more interesting or more uh, evocative for me. And it suddenly occurred to me that uh, my, my battles with addiction from my 20s, especially uh, my teens and 20s, would be worth writing about, especially from a neuroscience perspective, blended with a, with a subjective account. And that's what I, I thought that would be a really cool writing challenge, and I set myself to do that. Mark Lewis started writing his blog, Memoirs of Addicted Brain, almost 10 years ago. He had also written two books on science and his experience of addiction. He started experimenting with drugs while being in a very strict boarding school, but his addiction got stronger when he moved to California. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, uh, it, was a, it was a militaristic kind of school. It was... A, it was like a thousand miles from my home in Toronto, Canada. I, I was very unhappy there. I felt isolated. Um, there was bullying. There was just it was just a horrible place. And I didn't somehow have the uh, the confidence or the or the wherewithal to say to, to tell my parents, "Get me out of here. This is a bad choice." So instead, I just tried to endure it for two years. 
But I became more and more depressed during that period of time. I learned how to fight and uh, became, um, you know, kind of uh, kind of locked inside my own self and not really growing up uh, in in a very uh, expansive and flexible way. So the next stage was our, our family moved to California. It was 1968. It was the height of the hippie movement. And I, I got enrolled at UC Berkeley, Berkeley, California. So I was at, right at the center of the drug revolution, the you know, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that was a just... That was like the opposite. That was like going from hell to heaven for me. I thought, okay, this is great. I can now I can finally relax, and I I really dove into drugs of all different types as soon as I got there. At first, you managed to study and to use drugs at the same time, and you also were married. But with years going by, the situation uh, got so much more serious. It did. Yes, it did. Oh, I mean, I was seventeen when I arrived in Berkeley. And then I was taking things besides cannabis, taking things like uh, LSD and other psychedelics, which were not that um, uh, not that uh, um, shall we say frowned upon by Berkeley culture at that time. But then I started to to play around with heroin a bit and got quite uh, attached to opiates. And so that as the years went by, I spent a couple of years in Asia. Uh, I learned how to find opiates. I smoked opium when I was in India um, for for most of a year. Um, and then when I got back to Canada and got married to a Toronto girl, um, I started to use pharmaceutical opiates, and I started to get them by by breaking into uh, doctor's offices, medical centers, pharmacies, uh, stealing them from the lab where I was working, the rat lab. So I was really in bad shape. I was really a mess and a very hard time, you know, kind of controlling this sort of behavior. So that just led from one, from one disaster to another over the following five or six years. When you were stealing drugs, did you think at that time that the situation was getting out of control? Oh, yeah. I knew it was getting out of control. But, you know, addiction is quite complex. and I think of addiction in psychological terms. And... Um, it usually starts with kind of a self-medication approach. You want to just make yourself feel better. I, I started into drugs because I was anxious and depressed and um, really kind of alienated from myself. And then the that source of, of uh, soothing or contentment or satisfaction or pleasure becomes more and more symbolically uh, um, prominent and it becomes, it, it starts to represent, like, this is how to feel good. This is the way to feel at peace. And so even though, I mean, you know, my own addiction was not that different from other people's addictions. I got into drugs, and I found drugs that I preferred over other drugs, and I pursued them with a lot of determination, even though I knew that, uh, that, it was a very dangerous course of action, and I kept trying to quit. I tried and tried and tried and tried to quit, and uh, didn't didn't work for a long time until finally it did. Did you try to ask for help at that point? Yeah, but maybe I did. I I uh, well, I got I got busted once or twice, and I got convicted of uh, of some crimes and uh, I was assigned to go to uh, therapy and other times I went to therapy on my own, tried to find a therapist who could help me. But those 
that didn't work out very well. And now, now, many years later, I actually do psychotherapy with people who are struggling with addiction. And I'm aware of how difficult it is, um, partly because psychologists and psychiatrists don't have a clue about addiction. They don't understand it. And they don't know how to, uh, how to help people. They don't have the right tools. So I guess those sources of help really did not pan out for me. And so I kind of had to do it on my own, which a lot of people actually end up doing. And so, you know, it takes some effort and it takes some growing up, but I eventually succeeded. You have mentioned that you got arrested. Wasn't it a wake-up call for you that you needed to take control of the situation and stop using drugs? Oh, it was a wake-up call. <laughs> it certainly was. I mean, it, that was a disaster because, of course, it, takes, it took a lot of work to get accepted into a graduate program. And one of the ironies was that I was in clinical psychology. I really wanted to be a psychologist. So... Um, Uh, when I was convicted of breaking into a place to steal drugs, that was that did not go well with my department, and they said, you're finished here. And I had to go back to, um, I gave up on that career for a little while and started painting and washing windows and selling posters and doing whatever, and then working my way back up the ladder with in group homes and uh, mental health settings like that. Um, and finally got back into grad school about five years later after I put my uh, drug addiction behind me. So, yes, it was a wake-up call, but and it lasted for a while. I think there were about four or five months when I stayed off drugs. Um, and then I don't remember exactly what happened, but sometimes the, uh, sometimes the addiction just kind of catches you uh, by surprise, and you find yourself um, repeating Uh, almost, I won't say automatic, but shall we say routinized behavior patterns before you even know it. And then the feelings come, the excitement, the anticipation, and uh, I've always been a pretty impulsive person, so I guess I let myself go. And there I was again, back in the thick of it. But then what was a turning point when you realized that you could not continue like this anymore and you really needed to stop using drugs? Well, that's the thing. There is not one point. That's one of the first, first preconceptions, misconceptions about addiction. There isn't a certain point where you suddenly say, okay, I'm going to stop, and now you stop. There are many points along the way when I tried to take stock of myself, whether it was through therapy, mindfulness meditation, travel, various other things, education, of course. got to know myself better. And through all of these experiences, including the failures, you do grow up and you perhaps begin to understand better why you're doing what you're doing so that when the time comes and one, on one occasion, or perhaps more than one occasion, uh, you're successful, and suddenly you're free of drugs, and hopefully that lasts, but sometimes even that doesn't last for a lifetime, and you have to go through it again. So I, I don't buy the concept that addiction is a disease, by the way. I don't think of it as a chronic disease the way some people do. Rather, I think of it as a very deeply ingrained habit. And habits can reassert themselves, whether it's drugs or whether it's sex or whether it's music or whether it's religion or whether it's racism or all kinds of emotional habits uh, can be rather insidious because they don't necessarily go completely away, even when you know that they're not, um, they're not healthy. 
you emphasize a lot that addiction is a psychological issue, uh, but many people would think that it's also a physical problem, like physical addiction. Yeah, well, that, that's an easy one. There are certain drugs that cause a physical dependency and other drugs that don't. So opiates like heroin uh, obviously cause physical dependency. And so if you stop quickly, you are going to be extremely uncomfortable for probably weeks, depending on how long you've been doing it. Um, and there are other drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine that have no physical dependency, none. So given that, and given that both kinds of drugs are highly addictive, we have to separate the idea of addiction from the idea of a chemical dependency. Write a review, and then you can share it. With the world. In any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month, of every year, of every century, of every... You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. Pod Rev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag Pod Rev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. I also want to invite you to subscribe to the I Bounce Back podcast. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms, as well as on the website ibounceback.net. And now let's go back to our conversation with Mark. What were the words that helped him to stop using drugs? I wrote the word no on a piece of paper, put it on the wall, and, and you know, kind of used it as a kind of a mantra and, and recited it to myself uh, many times a day. And, and really, that was just a way of symbolizing my own repulsion at the, at, because, well, really, what, what happened with me, what sometimes happens with other people, is that the attraction of the substance is, over, um, is, is uh, over, overbalanced or compensated by the repulsion or by the uh, uh, um, aversion to, the, to that substance. You just... I hate this. I don't want it anymore. It's wrecking my life. Get away from me. Perhaps you you don't see it as so much a part of yourself anymore, but almost as an entity that you need to fight against. There's different kinds of psychological processes that you can use to push it away from yourself. And for me, the word no just kind of helped as a, a cognitive trick or tool that got me got me through those that difficult uh, several week period. You came back to the university and did your PhD in psychology. Uh, but was there any time where you had to really fight your addiction and that desire to use drugs again? Well, I didn't really have to work. It was only difficult for the first maybe few weeks. And it didn't take long um, after that in order to get just 
it became much less attractive uh, within a few months, and within a year or two, it had no appeal whatsoever. Um, and that went on for most of my life. There have been times when I've had medical situations where I've needed to take opiates for pain. And when that has happened, I have also felt, you know, the old attraction or pleasure or, oh, this is nice, the feelings. And uh, there, there was at least two periods when I had to take opiates for a period of months uh, before and after uh, spinal surgery. Um, but it just wasn't like it had been in my 20s. It was, there was something nice about it, but it, it didn't have that kind of hold on me. It wasn't that important. It just simply wasn't that important. So when the pain was, was under control, I was able to stop, and it wasn't such a big deal. Was it a common case for other addicts? Because, well, I have read stories upon stories about, you know, how hard it is to control yourself and your desires and to resist this need to use again. Yeah, well, you know, that's partly an urban myth. I mean, for some, some people, they just stop and they're done. They're finished which is why the idea of addiction as a chronic disease can be more, um, can cause more harm than good. If you feel that forever you are branded as an addict, and, and that, that's one of the, uh, that's one of the maxims from, a, from AA, from, 12, from the 12-step movement that I don't like, um, and a lot of other people also don't like, that uh, no, you don't have to consider to define. You don't have to continue to define yourself as an addict. It is not necessarily true that you continue to have this this huge uh, attraction or craving for a substance or a behavior. And you know, we're not just talking about drugs and substances. We're also talking about many behaviors are addictive: um, porn, sex, gambling, um, video games. Now are considered to be addictive by many people. So. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be, you know, this horrible compulsion that lasts the rest of your life and you have to fight against it. I think that's really a distortion. As I've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you put a lot of emphasis on the lack of self-trust and say that it's a pivotal point in addiction and recovery. Well, that's one of the things I've emphasized over the years. I try to look at the different psychological factors that help to um, to maintain the addiction uh, and make it hard to stop, and that, that is definitely one of them. So that really just amounts to if I've tried to stop, you know, twenty or thirty or fifty times, then it's really hard to believe that I can stop the fifty-first time. So now, on the surface level, that's just plain logic. Why should I believe it's going to work this time if it didn't work before? But I think at a more important, uh, deeper level, you, we all have, um, shall we say, voices in our heads, uh, parts of ourselves that have this kind of subliminal conversation. Um, many of us can talk about a self-critical internal voice, a dialogue um, between self-critical part and another part that wants to get away from the criticism is shut up and leave me alone. So um, I think that um, the, the idea of self-trust really has to do with how you feel about yourself and whether you feel coherent and, you know, centered 
despite the kind of chatter and conflict that can go on within within our within our, our own minds. I think it's it's very hard to trust yourself in your ability to quit just because of all this negative opinion that exists around drugs addicts. That's definitely yeah, that's another point is that addiction very very often corresponds with a, a lot of uh, negative emotions and especially shame. People who are struggling with addiction often feel great gobs of shame, which is a really nasty emotion. It's an extremely painful emotion. And, and we all know why addicts feel shame. It's because, you know, uh, self-control is kind of the basic currency of growing up and being a functional human being. And if you lose self-control, well, you should be ashamed of yourself because that's horrible. And shame is, I mean, psychologists and, and psychoanalysts and philosophers for, for many years have talked about shame as being kind of soul-destroying. It can erode a sense of self-cohesion. It can erode your sense that yourself of, of oneself as decent or worthwhile. And if that's going on at the same time, then it's also hard to trust yourself because you don't feel you deserve trust. You don't feel that you're worth it. And that makes things all the more difficult. You consult people who have problems with addictions and you also research this topic. Yeah. Did you find uh, a sort of recipe how to build that self-trust and help people? Well, yeah, the last, I mean, since I, I was a professor for about 25 years and then I kind of started to um, pare that down so I could do more writing and speaking. And the last five years or so, I've been doing uh, psychotherapy online mostly with people struggling with addiction. And it's been a fascinating experience trying to put some of these ideas into practice. So what do I do? Well, I've, you know, I've tried, I was trained in, in clinical psychology when I was in, uh, in grad school. And I, I use some of the techniques from psychodynamic therapy, but I've also used other techniques from there's other forms of therapy that are very powerful, like a ACT, ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I've, some of those tools are, are very helpful. And lately I've been extremely interested in a kind of a therapy model called uh, Internal Family Systems, which people can Google if they want. Internal Family Systems. What would that mean, if you could uh, explain shortly? Yeah, well, it's like... Mm, in the 60s and 70s, there was uh, a movement in psychology called family systems theory or family systems therapy, and people began to understand that families function as systems, and one person's problems were not, were not isolated from other people's problems. Teenagers' problems were often connected to their parents' problems and vice versa, and so on and so forth. The internal family systems suggest that we have kind of that the self is not unitary or uniform, but there are different parts of us, and those parts form a kind of constellation of voices, many of which come from childhood or adolescence or earlier parts of life, but that haven't gone away. And they, have, they each have different sorts of motives or goals. For example, the part that wants to condemn or criticize or discipline the self, as I mentioned before, but also the part that uh, wants to um, be free, the part that wants to get high, that wants to be totally irresponsible, that wants to just say, you know, fuck off to the world. And that's a real part too, and that's in there. So 
And there, there may be other parts that are very scared and very uh, childlike and that uh, amount to huge amounts of loneliness and isolation and helplessness that people don't experience consciously very easily. So if all those parts are in there and they're all kind of active in, in different ways at different times, this kind of therapy tries to um, recognize them, understand them, uh, empathize with them, connect with them, and resolve their issues, so to speak. I know it's a strange way of talking. It sounds like we're talking about uh, you know, a, a tribe or a family, but really we're just talking about parts of uh, one person's mind. And I'm using this form of therapy and finding it to be very powerful. I, I find it extremely fascinating. So I think that's, that's my bandwagon for now. And it's, um, you know, people get helped once they realize what's going on and what's causing their anxiety and their fears and their depression and their torment. They, uh, the, the appeal of drugs just, just peels away, just drops away. It just becomes much powerful. And then they just stop. You mentioned that at some point you have started writing a blog about addictions and in this way you managed to connect with a lot of people and now you consult them. How did you come up with this idea and how did it develop uh, throughout the years? Yeah, I've, I've had an active blog, um, an addiction blog. It's very much concerned with people in addiction uh, for, uh, it's been, uh, I think, nine years now. And... I've got a great community of readers and people who comment and discuss issues, um, which uh, I hope people who are interested will, will come and find me. It's, it's, uh, if you just Google my name, Mark Lewis and Addiction, you'll find my website, and the blog is right there. And it's a great way to connect with, for me to learn more about people who are struggling and suffering and also for them to connect with each other and feel heartened by uh, commonalities by, you know, struggles that they might have thought were just their own, but in fact are much more uh, widespread. And, um, you know, blogging has been a big uh, way for people to connect over the past decade or two. I think now people are turning more to podcasts as you are doing it yourself. So that maybe that'll be my next step. I'm not sure. <laughs> And um, you are an expert on this issue from all sides. And of course, you can relate to people who are struggling with drug addiction. Mm -hmm. What would be your key advice to people who are struggling or losing that strength and trust in themselves? Yeah, well, again, different people have very different issues uh, that drug that draw them to, to uh, substance use. Um, usually there are powerful historical factors, whether it's um, neglect or some kind of abuse or trauma in their childhood or adolescence. For me, the boarding school was a pretty big deal. Um, and, you know, if you could generalize across different people's issues, I think getting to know yourself and getting to forgive yourself, first of all, that you're not evil and you're not just a, some self-indulgent, you know, robot. Um, the fact that, you, that you're using substances um, without much control means probably that you're trying to, to find a way to feel better after something has caused you to feel very, very wrong. So accepting that, getting to know yourself in that way, reduces the shame, reduces the panic, reduces the, the, the isolation, the sense of aloneness. 
And then there's lots of other things that are very helpful, connecting with other people. Um, I think, you know, obviously I think that psychotherapy could be very valuable for other people. It can be groups or treatment centers, but treatment centers uh, have their own problems and that's a whole other subject. And for some people it's AA and that, that, you know, the 12 step movement, but that's also got problems for a lot of people. So different people really have to figure out what they need. But I think the first step is, is self acceptance, trying to find a way to, to be compassionate towards yourself, even though you're doing things which you're not proud of. It's very interesting that you managed to stop using drugs and quit completely on your own without additional help. What were the things that helped you the most? What were the things that kept you going during the hardest days? I had built up a certain amount of repugnance or disgust towards drugs. I just said, I just started to hate them. That helped. Um, there was a sense of purpose that was like, this is different now. It just felt different. Um, it's just kind of gritting my teeth for a few weeks, the first two or three, oh, first, yeah, a couple of weeks, saying just getting the thoughts out of my head before they had a chance to, to uh, blossom. Um, stuff like that, uh, filling my time with other things. For many people, that's really important to connect with uh, the world in, in new ways, in different ways, to connect with people. Uh, addicts can tend to become very, very isolated, and that's not good. That's not helpful. So if you can connect with others, that really can help you to feel more like a human being and more like there is more than one source of uh, of um of satisfaction and, and of, of peace. So th those are all ways that I, I think, you know, were useful for me at that time. Also, I got into mindfulness meditation um, and practiced that pretty, pretty um, regularly during that time. I, I studied Tai Chi at that time also. I went, went out to the park at night and did Tai Chi, and that was kind of fun, and that felt kind of uh, edgy at the same time, which was you know, made me feel that I wasn't just a lump of clay, but also it was very different from taking drugs, obviously, and became its own source of comfort and pride. So those are the kinds of things that help me and that I think can help other people too. It was a pleasure to have Mark Lewis on our podcast. He researches drug dependence as a cultural, social, psychological, and biological phenomenon. For more information, visit our website, iboundsback.net. There you will find a blog post about Mark. Our next episode will be ready on the 23rd of September. And I promise you a unique and inspiring story. That river wasn't even that wide. Just like your fate is so different depending on which side of river you are born into, right? From my side of river, I saw these uh, children in China. They were really, really well fed. And I could smell these noodles and barbecue they were doing. And also, you know, at night, I was able to see uh, this like electricity from China. Just wondered what would that be, what, what the life would be like in that light, where the lights were. Tune in in two weeks. Stay safe. Bye.